We do know that diets that are high in saturated fat can increase LDL cholesterol. So I think that's something we need to be mindful of, especially if we're talking about diabetes, they are at an increased risk of heart disease. So we definitely want to keep um, those cholesterol levels low as well. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hi friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today's guest is registered dietitian and nutrition science researcher, Andrea Glenn, PhD. Dr. Glenn is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Nutrition at Harvard and the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto. Her primary research focus has been on the portfolio diet, a plant-based dietary pattern of established cholesterol-lowering foods, and its role in cardiometabolic disease prevention and management. What is cardiometabolic health? How is cardiometabolic health affected by the food choices we make in our day-to-day? Why studying dietary patterns is important, the importance of observational research and clinical interventions, and plenty more all discussed within this conversation. As this is the last episode of the year, allow me to quickly say thank you. I appreciate all of the members of this community and am eternally grateful for the opportunity to be able to share these science-based conversations and science-based moments together. I'm of the belief that it's in our DNA to be curious, and science offers a way for us to follow this curiosity, making it possible to objectively understand the world around us. Through this, we can be healthier, more sustainable, and more compassionate towards one another and all life around us. We can live better for longer. Happy holidays, stay well, and I look forward to seeing you in the new year next week where we kick things off with a powerful episode that takes us through the highlights of 2022 with a focus on some of my favorite topics, heart disease, gut health, fasting, protein, exercise, and planetary health. And with that, please enjoy the last episode of this year. This is me and Andrea Glenn, PhD. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store 
To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Andrea, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to be doing this. Hi, Simon. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm a huge fan of your show, so it's great to be able to be here with you today. And as we were just chatting offline, there might be a little bit of rain. I'm in the middle of a tropical rainstorm here in, in, in Byron Bay, so um, hopefully that's not too too off-putting and, and kind of, I guess, adds to the ambience of this conversation. Um, been looking forward to doing this for a while. I, I had uh, Dr. David Jenkins on a few months back, which I know that you're aware of. And um, I see today's conversation sort of as a sort of follow-up and an extension on, on much of what we spoke about in that conversation, delving into sort of all things cardiometabolic health with a, a focus on dietary patterns, which I know has been a, a real focus of your work. For folks who perhaps are not familiar with you yet, uh, tell us a little bit about your sort of entry into dietetics and and ultimately into academia. Sure. So I started my, I guess, journey in nutrition about 16 years ago, which uh, seems like a long, long time ago when I started my undergraduate degree. So I did a Bachelor of Science in nutrition. Um, this was in Canada. And this was a dietetics program. Um, and then from there, um, this was in the East Coast of Canada, and I moved to Toronto. And I did a master's and dietetic internship there. And then after that, I was thinking about going back to do a PhD, but I wasn't quite sure about uh, what I wanted to do. So I actually worked for a couple of years. So I worked as a uh, research dietitian, mainly on clinical trials related to diabetes and glycemic index. And I also did some teaching, um, some clinical nutrition, undergraduate teaching. And then I decided to go back and do a PhD. And I did my PhD with Dr. John Piper at the University of Toronto. And this uh, PhD work was mostly on the portfolio diet, specifically looking at uh, the portfolio diet in cohort studies. So that was the first time we've ever done that. Um, so that was uh, really cool because I got to uh, collaborate with a number of international researchers through that 
And I finished uh, my PhD last year, and then I was very fortunate to get some funding from the Canadian government to do a postdoctoral fellowship. So right now, I'm at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health working with Dr. Frank Hu, and I'm also still working with uh, Dr. David Jenkins at the University of Toronto, mm -hmm. focusing on the portfolio diet um, with epidemiology, clinical trials, and metabolomics, as well as some other um, dietary patterns. Well, it sounds like you're, you're in good company there, a few of the, the nutrition giants with uh, Dr. Jenkins and Frank Hu. I'm sure you're learning a, a lot from them. What's that been been like? How has how have the likes of Dr. Jenkins and, and Frank Hu sort of influenced the way that you think about science and nutrition? Yeah, that's a great question. They're both uh, extremely knowledgeable, and I I've definitely learned a lot from both of them and um, all of their knowledge over the years on how to conduct specific types of analyses and what's really the most important uh, nutrition questions that we need to focus on. And um, a lot of that is related to plant-based diets, of course, as they both are pretty big proponents of those dietary patterns. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there that some of your early work was looking at the portfolio diet, which again was really the center of that conversation that I had with Dr. Jenkins. But you were looking at it within these cohort sort of population studies as opposed to previously i believe it, it was more in clinical trials mm -hmm. and you just mentioned then that what you're doing now is a sort of a mix of clinical trial work and epidemiology so really i guess just speaking broadly how do you see these two different sort of study designs being utilized to, to help us better understand what a healthy dietary pattern looks like and, and the types of foods that we may want to eat more or, or less of? So, yeah, we, I did some work with the portfolio diet and trials and then looking at epidemiology. And I think some of the biggest things we need to consider is consistency across these studies. Um, so with the trials, they're usually on intermediate risk factors. Um, they're usually shorter term. Um, we unfortunately don't have a lot of longer term studies in nutrition. Um, so that's when we usually turn to those respective cohort studies to see if you're consuming more of these foods, like the portfolio foods, and if they're going to be associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes as well. Perhaps we could, before we go a little bit deeper into this, it might be wise for us to sort of best understand why the interest in dietary patterns so why, as a, as a researcher, are you interested in looking at the portfolio diet? I know you've looked at the Nordic diet. There are the DASH dietary pattern I know you've looked at. Why dietary patterns? What is a dietary pattern? And why are you sort of looking at, at these as your area of interest? So we'll start with what a dietary pattern is. So that would be looking at your entire diet, at like all of the foods that you consume, um, and not just focusing on specific like macronutrients or nutrients. Um, and there's been a lot of shift in dietary guidelines and clinical practice guidelines recently, where we tend to not focus so much on specific like carbohydrate, fat, or protein requirements, and focus more on overall dietary patterns. And the reason for this is because usually with um, different types of fat, you might have some reduced risk, um, but if you combine overall dietary pattern with healthy foods, healthy carbohydrates, healthy fat sources, you're more likely to see um, a, um, a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. So it really 
I think provides you better or better advice related to cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And it's also a lot more practical. So from a, a dietitian's perspective, trying to um, work with clients to get certain macronutri- macronutrient distributions can be quite complicated. So if you just focus on dietary mm-hmm. patterns and specific foods that are more beneficial, it's a bit easier to translate. And I think uh, mm-hmm. lastly, a lot of this comes from because we've discovered that there's so many different macronutrient distributions that can be helpful, that uh, focusing on dietary patterns is, is more important. Do you also feel like you know, macronutrients are, I guess they're, they're umbrella terms, right? Mm-hmm. And so a carbohydrate's not necessarily a carbohydrate and fat is not necessarily fat. There are different types. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about the sort of dietary guidelines and how they've set us up for, for disease. And people often point back to the 1980 sort of US dietary guidelines, which I've read through and I'd be interested to hear your view on. I actually don't think they're that horrible. I think many people would probably improve their health if they were able to adhere to them. Um, But I do think that at least in the media sort of communication of those guidelines and a lot of conversations um, off the back of those guidelines around specific focus on macronutrients and not on dietary patterns as such and not on the foods, the actual foods. And if you're eating less of that food, eat more of this food. I think that did leave the sort of door ajar a little bit for the food industry to come in and say, okay, you want to eat less fat? Well, we'll we'll create low-fat foods. And they certainly tick that box of being low-fat, but they're not necessarily the most health-promoting foods. And, and perhaps sort of take on that kind of halo effect where they do tick a box from a nutrient point of view, but are not the, the kind of way we want to eat for cardiometabolic health. Is that something that you think about? Yeah, definitely. And I actually um, have a story about this when I was in undergrad. I was uh, uh, working at a, um, a pharmacy and I remember that there was um, Twizzlers and they said low fat on them. And I did have some people come in talking about, oh, it's low fat. They're they're not bad for you. And they were assuming that Twizzlers were mm-hmm. were okay. So I think it's definitely have has done some uh, damage in terms of uh, what we consider a healthy food when we put halos like low fat on um, some of those products, particularly in the in the nineties and eighties and early two thousands. Which country do you feel like has the the best dietary guidelines now today? It's a good question. <laughs> Um, I think there's a few that have pretty decent guidelines. Um, I know um, probably one of the first to kind of focus more on environment would be like Sweden and some of the Nordic countries. Um, So they were really um, probably at the forefront of some of the recommendations around environment and including uh, more uh, plant-based foods in your diet. Um, I also think Canada's Food Guide, which came out a couple of years ago now, was also a pretty big change for us and was a really, really good example of um, guidelines that were based on science with no with no industry involvement. Um, so those who aren't familiar, Canada's Food Guide is mainly a, a plate. So they have like a plate image and they show that half your plate should be from fruits and vegetables, quarter of your plate should be um, from grains and starches, which is focusing on whole grains, and then quarter of your plate would be uh, protein, and that includes all sources of protein, including dairy and um, fish and meat and plant protein, with a particular focus on choosing plant protein 
options more often. I want to dig into protein. I'm sure we'll, we'll get there at some stage. I'll put a, a, a link to the, the Health Canada dietary guidelines into the, the notes. I think as we sort of unpack some of your research here, there's probably a few key terms that we we should define mm-hmm. and you've already defined dietary pattern the other that i'd like to define is this idea of cardio metabolic health i think that pops up a lot in the literature mm-hmm. it probably pops up in conversation on lots of podcasts but i'm not sure that everyone fully appreciates what does that mean when we say cardio metabolic health and when you say that as a researcher and are then investigating this in studies how would you define that? So cardiometabolic health, at least from the research that I do, is related to risk factors and conditions that can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. So these are specifically risk factors like obesity, overweight, there's dyslipidemia, so that could be high LDL cholesterol, non-HDL, ApoB, low triglycerides, uh, or high triglycerides, sorry, low HDL cholesterol. There's blood pressure, um, blood sugar, and also considering conditions like um, metabolic syndrome and prediabetes as well. So cardiometabolic health, you're sort of measuring that through those biomarkers or um, whether it's looking at body weight or waist circumference or the biomarkers like triglycerides or ApoB, blood pressure, etc. And so if someone has good cardiometabolic health, we're saying essentially they they don't have cardiovascular disease, they're at low risk of cardiovascular disease, of say having a heart attack or a stroke. They presumably don't have insulin resistance, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and um, some of these other conditions like sort of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Would that be a fair summary of, of someone that has good cardiometabolic health? Yes, definitely. And I think another point with that would be having those risk factors low without taking medications as well. So, and then it's a bit of a spectrum. So as you, as some of those biomarkers start to shift into a more unfavorable direction, we're increasing our risk of developing those conditions or, or we have those conditions that, that you mentioned and I just sort of summarized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say an important um, point about cardiometabolic health is that the current research that we have. I think there was a study looking at NHANES. So that's a population study in the US that showed that only 7% of Americans are have optimal cardiometabolic health. Okay. And so your research is very much looking at how do the dietary choices we make and the overall dietary pattern that we adhere to over a long period, well, particularly, I guess, more so in the epidemiology, the studies where you have data that that comes from years and years, decades of, um, of someone's lifestyle. Does nutrition affect these biomarkers and the risk of these conditions? That's really at the sort of heart of what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So nutrition is probably one of the top risk factors for, for these diseases, and it is the cornerstone of um, prevention and management of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. So it is a really important part of having good cardiometabolic health. Your work, from what I've read, you you look at a range of, of, or have looked at a range of dietary patterns. I know you focused on the portfolio diet, but I mentioned before Nordic, I believe Mediterranean, mm-hmm. DASH, there's all of these kind of different dietary patterns that your work has looked at. How would you go about explaining this 
you know, the commonalities between these dietary patterns and perhaps what, what are some of the important distinctions or differences between them, particularly the ones that, that people may not be familiar with, like DASH or the Nordic for folks, you know, in Australia or, or in Canada or, or, or USA? I'll start with explaining what some of them are. So the DASH diet, it stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. So as you imagine by its name, it's a dietary pattern that was created to help lower blood pressure. So this dietary pattern, it's high in fruits and vegetables. Um, it's high in low fat dairy. It is also quite high in legumes and nuts, as well as lean meats. And it reduces ultra processed foods, sugar sweetened beverages and high sodium foods. From what we've seen from the literature, from the trials, it does result in significant reductions in blood pressure. And um, another of other risk factors as well, like LDL cholesterol. And then in the cohorts, we also see that it's associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Next, for the Nordic diet, which some people may be uh, less familiar with. So as, it, as its name implies, it's from the Nordic countries. So Denmark, Iceland, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. So it's a dietary pattern based on healthy traditional Nordic foods that's in line with the Nordic recommendations. So it's an overall healthy dietary pattern, but it has specific foods that are kind of core to it. So for example, um, for grains, things like rye, oats, and barley are a big component. Uh, for fruits and vegetables, you'll see a lot of berries, a lot of root vegetables, and then cruciferous vegetables like cabbage. Um, it's fairly high in... Um, or it's, it recommends like legumes, a lot of seafood and low fat dairy. And then the main oils or fat sources are from rapeseed or canola oil um, and some nuts. How would that dietary pattern differ to a, a sort of Mediterranean or a traditional Mediterranean diet as, as defined within the literature? There's definitely some overlap between the Mediterranean diet as well as um, all the other dietary patterns. They are quite plant predominant. Um, I think some of the main differences may be like the fat source, like it's focusing more on canola rather than olive oil, mm -hmm. um, just because that's, you know, a traditional food that would grow in that region compared to olive oil. Um, and as well as more focus on whole grains like rye and oats um, that may not uh, grow in the Mediterranean region, um, and then different types of fruits and vegetables as well. Okay. We might come back to canola okay. because I think that creates a little bit of, of controversy online anyway. I'm not sure why, but um, we can we can double click on that in a, in a moment. So that's the DASH diet, the Nordic diet, the Mediterranean diet. What other dietary patterns has your work looked at? So portfolio is the other one um, that we uh, talked about, and I can just give a little bit of info what that is in case people aren't familiar with it. Mm -hmm. So it is a cholesterol lowering diet. Um, it was developed to lower LDL cholesterol specifically, and it's based on a dietary pattern of foods that all have health claims for cholesterol reduction. And these health claims are in the US or, or Canada or in Europe. Um, and it has a number of pillars that we call. Um, so first, it's low in saturated fat and dietary cholesterol. And then you add foods on top. So that includes um, plant protein, specifically soy protein. It's high in viscous fiber sources. So that's a type of soluble fiber. And this includes things like barley, oats, psyllium, 
okra, eggplant, and berries. And then it's also high in nuts and plant sterols and also plant monounsaturated fat sources. So again, sometimes canola oil or olive oil or avocado or high oleic sunflower oil. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. And earlier you mentioned there's different types of studies to kind of look at different things and sort of short-term randomized controlled trials can be very good for looking at things that change more quickly, like some of these biomarkers or established risk factors like LDL cholesterol. The epidemiology can be good at looking at longer-term sort of health outcomes. When it comes to the portfolio diet and cardiovascular disease, so I can appreciate there's been quite a lot of clinical trials looking at um, changes in cholesterol, et cetera. How, how much information do we have if someone says today, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to adopt the portfolio diet, 
how significantly can they affect their risk of having a heart attack or a stroke? So what information do we have on on kind of the more hard health outcome data when it comes to this dietary pattern? Most of the research we have is on trials, looking at the intermediate risk factors. Um, and specifically with the portfolio diet, we did see large reductions in and LDL cholesterol, depending on which study we're looking at, if it's dietary advice or if all the foods were provided, we can see up to 30% reductions in LDL cholesterol, which is quite high. Um, so based on that, we can assume to see reductions in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, but of course, we don't have that trial to exactly say that. So during my PhD, I actually looked at this in a cohort study. So this cohort study was the Women's Health Initiative. So this is a cohort in the U.S. of postmenopausal women. It's about 160,000 women. And I looked at um, people who consume more of the foods of the portfolio diet. And so it's not, they're not following all of the recommendations um, perfectly because it is a mm -hmm. cohort and they weren't, you know, advised to eat these foods. We did see um, about a 13 or 14% lower risk of coronary heart disease, as well as lower risk of cardiovascular disease, but we didn't see an association with stroke. Have you any sort of hypothesis as to why you might not see any significant benefit with regards to stroke? Yeah, that was a, an important question that came up. Um, and there are a number of things um, that could could link to that. So particularly for stroke, sometimes uh, blood pressure can be a more important risk factor for stroke. And in the portfolio diet trials, we don't see, we see some reduction in blood pressure, but it's not quite as strong as something like LDL cholesterol. So um, because of that, you might expect that there'd be more reductions in coronary heart disease or heart attacks, for example. So each of these dietary patterns that you sort of tend to look at, I guess, would it, would it be fair to say one of the commonalities is that they're plant predominant. So compared to a typical diet, they're very rich in, in whole plants. It's one thing they share. Yes. But I'm kind of interested when we think about cardiometabolic health, we think about uh, heart attacks, strokes, we think about risk of type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Is there a standout among these dietary patterns, one that's kind of best for all, or is is it a case of the portfolio diet might be best for reducing your risk of a heart attack, but the DASH diet might be better for lowering blood pressure and, and risk of, of stroke? And is that something that you give any thought to, which then could lead to, okay, well, if we look at all of these different similar but different dietary patterns and how they're affecting risk, Maybe we can pick and choose the best parts from each and then come up with the ultimate. The ultimate dietary pattern. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a really, a really good question. And I, I don't know for sure we could say one is better than the other at this point because we don't really have like a lot of head-to-head -head, um, trials specifically looking at this. Um, but I would say if someone has high cholesterol, a portfolio diet might be better. And if someone has high blood pressure, a DASH diet might be better. Um, but the portfolio diet can also decrease blood pressure. And the DASH diet's also been shown to decrease LDL cholesterol. Um, so I think like both of them could work. And same with the Mediterranean diet or a Nordic diet. Um, so I think kind of going back to what's really important sometimes is um, 
adherence to dietary patterns is really the most important uh, part if you want to get um, success in reducing your cardiometabolic mm-hmm. risk. So again, if we have a range of dietary patterns that are beneficial for cardiometabolic health, you can kind of pick or choose the one you like, or as you mentioned, maybe pick some parts from certain um, dietary patterns that you can incorporate into your own diet. Yeah, I like that. It gives gives people choice. I mean, at the end of the day, none of these really work if you only do them for two weeks yeah exactly Um, what can you what can you kind of sustain for decades Mm -hmm. mediterranean diet let's double click a little bit on that because that often is a word i guess or a diet that gets thrown out there a lot but i think when many people hear it they think well hang on people in italy eat a little different to people in greece and people in greece eat a little different to those in france and you know what is a Mediterranean diet. So as a researcher, when you're looking at it and when you're saying, okay, you know, we have evidence that adhering to this Mediterranean diet reduces risk of cardiometabolic disease. And I'll get you to kind of expand on what evidence we do have, but what does a Mediterranean diet in that context actually mean to you? What does it look like on a plate? Yeah, it's another good question. As you mentioned, it really depends which country you're in. And I think a lot of this really started in the 1960s in, in Crete specifically. So this is in Greece um, and these uh, the Mediterranean diet from what I would think would be the traditional Mediterranean diet um, that's high in fruits and vegetables. It's high in nuts, um, olive oil, or particularly extra virgin is the main source. Um, there is um, lots of legumes maybe a little bit of um, dairy and eggs and it's quite low and lots of fish. And then it's quite low in red meat. Um, And sometimes there will be some wine consumption with meals. So what would you say to, to someone? Cause often I'll see on social media, someone will post something about uh, a study showing Mediterranean diet was associated with lower risk of, and you could reel off a number of things whether we're talking about type 2 diabetes or um, dementia, a bunch of different conditions. And they'll say, well, I went to Europe and I was at such and such location and I can tell you the locals were eating a lot of of red meat <laughs> and they get a bit confused by things. Uh, I think they, they then start to wonder, well, is the Mediterranean diet in those studies, is it associated with with a good health outcome because these people that they've seen in real life are eating a lot of pork or red meat, for example, how would you go about sort of helping someone um, or or helping explain to someone um, how you are looking at the Mediterranean diet in studies and, and, and why what they're seeing in person may, may not actually be reflective of the published literature. Yeah. I actually lived in in Spain for a little bit during my PhD. So I, I also noticed that uh, the diet's not exactly what you think from from studies, um, but typically in in the research studies, and I'll use I guess I'll, I'll use cohorts and then I'll use trials as well. So I think one of the more well known trials that we have is PrettyMed. Um, so in the PrettyMed study, this is a Mediterranean diet. They supplemented with either nuts or extra virgin olive oil. Um, in terms of what you might see were protein. There's a lot of quite a bit of fish and legumes, and there is a little bit of red meat, um, but it's really recommended to consume white meat over red meat in the in those trials. Um, and then specifically in 
cohort studies, when we are doing some analyses of these, we use like a, it's a scoring system. And um, specifically, there's it's going to be high in fruits and vegetables again. It's going to be high in nuts and legumes. There's going to be low saturated fat and higher monounsaturated fat. So coming from things like olive oil. Um, so it really is more plant-based than what, what um, you might see when you're visiting some of the countries. The important thing to note here being that the associations that, that are shown in the literature are based off of this scoring system. And, and, and so when, when a study says the Mediterranean diet was associated with better health outcome, that's based on that sort of scientific definition mm-hmm. of a Mediterranean diet being rich in these whole plant foods, rich in unsaturated fats, low in saturated fats, some room for, for meat and red mm-hmm. meat, but it's, it's certainly not a sort of focus of the diet. Would that be fair? Yeah, exactly. And, and whole grains as well, which I think I forgot to mention. Yeah. yeah. Overall, these, these sort of plant-predominant dietary patterns, they're modulating the sort of cardiometabolic um, disease risk by promoting healthier blood pressure, lowering cholesterol, um, helping improve blood glucose control. Anything else? Yes, definitely. So there's been, um, particularly for cardiometabolic risk, we see some reductions in inflammation as well. Um, so we actually saw quite large reductions in C-reactive protein in the portfolio diet trials, which can be an important risk factor for cardiovascular disease and um, may be applicable to other diseases like cancer. Body weight would be another one. So we do see uh, weight loss in, in a number of these uh, studies looking at these dietary patterns. That brings up an interesting question. So how much of the cardiometabolic benefits of these various dietary patterns do you think is driven by body weight Mm -hmm. so if someone's thinking well andrea this all sounds amazing but maybe it's just that people that eat this way they are less likely to be overweight and that's what's affecting the risk of these diseases and so if you maintain a healthy body weight it doesn't matter what you eat have you is that something you've sort of grappled with 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 your research Definitely. And weight definitely plays a role for sure. So when people lose weight, um, they do tend to see reductions in blood pressure, in lipids and and, um, improvements in insulin sensitivity. So it definitely does play a role. Um, But I would say that there are um, independent effects of, of diet on these cardiometabolic risk factors outside weight. And we can kind of look at this, mm-hmm. looking at different study designs as well as different analytical methods. So an example um, of this from the portfolio diet trials would be the metabolically controlled trials where they provided all of the foods and they were meant to maintain their body weight. So no one was actually losing weight in these studies. And then they still saw large reductions in LDL cholesterol, in inflammation, um, and small reductions in blood pressure as well. Just to highlight something, I, I believe in those trials where body weight was maintained, the portfolio diet trials you're talking about, the, the LDL cholesterol reduction was almost 30%. It wasn't a small reduction, right? And one of those yeah. trials was with a compared to a statin, and it was the same as the statin, which was, mm-hmm. which was pretty interesting to see. Okay, so, so point being that independent of body weight, the construction of the diet can influence some of these these biomarkers that 
sort of modulate cardio metabolic health in a, in a big way. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, I cut you off, but you were you were about to talk, I think, about epidemiology. Yes, well, analytical methods, um, both trials and and, and epi. So, um, particularly if I think the Nordic diet. So our group recently um, did a systematic review and meta analysis. So this was um, led by my PhD supervisor, Dr. John Stephen Piper, and my colleague Evie Masara, and they looked at um, the Nordic diet and cardiometabolic risk factors. And they did see reductions in, in weight and lipids and um, some other risk factors as well. But in those studies, they adjusted for body weight. So, and the associate or the effects were still seen. So um, we can say that these were independent of body weight as well. And you can also do similar analyses in cohorts as well. Yeah. And if someone's thinking, what on earth does adjusting for body weight mean? Can you explain in a kind of lay way, you know, how does that help you sort of see the, the independent effects of the diet um, with, without the, the results being affected by changes in body weight? Statistical method where when you're doing the analysis, if it's using some sort of regression model, you would take the information on body weight. So if people lost body weight over the trial, you would include that in your analysis. And then that would control for it. And what you would see on, say, LDL cholesterol is going to be independent of body weight. You were going to add something else yes, to that as well. I was, yeah. So an example in cohort studies that I um, did recently. So I recently published a paper. This was in diabetes care, looking at the portfolio DASH and Mediterranean diets and risk of type 2 diabetes in the Women's Health Initiative again. Um, so... What I did with this analysis is I adjusted for all your um, covariates that you would normally include, and then I would take another model and add BMI to it to see what effect um, BMI has on the associations. And we saw about a 10% difference. So BMI is definitely playing a role, but the associations were still significant. So there's still other um, parameters at play for these dietary patterns. So break that down for me. I'm not sure if I heard that correctly, but you said 10%. But if we're thinking about just the benefit of switching to a, a diet, one of these plant-predominant diets, do you have a sense for how much of that benefit, maybe as a percentage, is is due to a reduction in body weight versus the change in kind of compounds and nutrients within the diet? Yeah, it's a good Good question. I'm not sure if we can totally say for sure how much is coming from body weight specifically, because yeah, there's kind of synergistic effects with the dietary patterns. Um, so it's kind of hard to say exactly. But in the case of the cohort studies where we saw the 10% reduction, we can we can say that there is a role of, of body weight. Let's go into the components of these diets that are sort of doing the work, so to speak. That is shifting cardiometabolic health in the in the right direction, independent of the the weight loss. If you were to kind of list these, whether we're thinking about specific nutrients, probably are. What are the kind of components of these dietary patterns that you think are most responsible for the benefits? I guess we could start with macronutrients. So we can start looking at. Um, 
uh, carbs, protein, fats, and fiber. So uh, I guess I'll start with I'll start with fiber. Uh, fiber fiber is a fun one. Um, so all of these dietary patterns are high in fiber. Um, and there's two types of um, fiber. There's insoluble and soluble. Um, and both of these are very important for um, overall cardiometabolic health. But in particular, um, soluble fiber, the viscous soluble fiber that I mentioned, um, that's part of the portfolio diet. There's really good research on those types of fiber and reducing LDL cholesterol, but also on um, markers of glycemic control as well. So these specific types of fiber can delay gastric emptying, and um, they may have some um, important effects on cardiometabolic risk. Um, so those are found in things like oats and barley, psyllium, berries, and some other fruits and vegetables. Okay, great. And when you say glycemic control, I know I use that term earlier and I probably take for granted um, the actual, the, the definition. If someone's hearing that for the first time, what does that mean to them? There's a few markers that we, we use for glycemic control. Um, one of the main ones could be um, glycated hemoglobin, or sometimes you hear HbA1c or just A1c. Um, so that kind of gives an average um, percentage of what your glucose was like over the last three months. Um, so that's a really good marker. And then there's also uh, mm -hmm. fasting plasma glucose. Um, so that is when you're fasted, what your glucose levels are. And that's also a good um, predictor for glycemic control and diabetes risk. So that's that's fiber. So that's sort of one component shared shared characteristic of these these dietary patterns is that they're rich in fiber, particularly this soluble fiber, which then affects some of these risk factors, cholesterol, um, blood glucose control that you just mentioned. What about carbohydrates? What do we need to understand about the role of carbohydrates in or um, for promoting good cardiometabolic health? Yeah, so carbohydrates are sometimes a little bit demonized in the in social media, but they can play either a good or bad role in cardiometabolic health. Um, it's fairly broad range or broad category of, of foods. Um, so things like refined carbohydrates and starchy foods or foods high in added sugar have generally been shown to be result in uh, lower or worse cardiometabolic health, um, both in trials and in, in cohort studies. But when we think of more whole, unprocessed carbohydrate sources like whole grains, um, like steel-cut oats, uh, quinoa, buckwheat, um, a number of other whole grains you can mention, we do see beneficial effects on cardiometabolic risk factors as well as reduced risk of cardiometabolic disease in cohort studies. Why do you think there is so much confusion about this macronutrient? I mean, I still see it all the time online that carbohydrates cause diabetes mm -hmm. and and i think that there is this it's not everyone but there is a, a large percentage of people who who think that carbohydrates um being broken down to sugar is sort of quote unquote the, the cause of insulin resistance and and type 2 diabetes why do you think that exists and what would you kind of like them to understand, I guess, about the the physiology um, that might help them put this kind of idea to to bed and not not be fearing some of these foods that your research 
has shown, yes, contain carbohydrates, mm-hmm. but are actually really helpful with regards to cardiometabolic health? Yeah, so I think some of the confusion or reason why people may avoid carbohydrates is the popularity of a lot of lower carbohydrate diets. Um, and they're, um, they can kind of demonize carbohydrates. So a lot of people, they see these things, so they just assume all carbohydrates um, should be avoided. And as I mentioned, it is a broad category. So there's, of course, uh, good and bad sources of carbohydrates. So carbohydrate quality is going to be really important. So I think people might get a bit confused with, um, um, with what the role carbohydrate has because of, because of that. And generally what we see, um, and some of the past research that I've done, is that um, if you have whole unprocessed carbohydrates or carbohydrates that are um, a lower glycemic index, we do see um, beneficial effects on cardiometabolic disease risk factors. And generally the most important thing for carbohydrates is that you're not consuming them in excess. So I think it's the excess calories of carbohydrates that are more of the problem than the carbohydrates themselves. Mm -hmm. And would you say that that is generally driven through the consumption of refined carbohydrates and sort of these more hyper palatable foods, not overconsumption of calories through eating more oats and legumes? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of healthy dietary patterns that are quite high in carbohydrates. And as long as they're using those high quality carbohydrates, um, they can still be beneficial for health. Um, And I find like a lot of those foods are also quite hard to over over consume because they're they're very filling so sitting down and eating bowls and bowls of beans probably isn't going to happen yeah i've i've interviewed uh robbie and cyrus from mastering diabetes i'm not sure if you're familiar with their work and and also uh read a lot of roy taylor's work on type 2 diabetes and listened to him speak a lot and certainly being overweight and having excessive adiposity, particularly that visceral adiposity seems to be the main driver from from my take on things, the main driver for insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Um, so it does sort of follow that dietary patterns that are going to reduce your risk of becoming overweight are going to be protective from that perspective anyway. Yeah, definitely. I. I agree. It's definitely the weight and the the um, visceral fat that is driving a lot of this uh, this increase in diabetes that we're seeing. So, how do you think about reducing your risk of, say, developing insulin resistance and type two diabetes versus treating or managing type two diabetes? Do you sort of do you see the same dietary pattern that's best for reducing risk also being the same dietary pattern that's best for for treating it. I know there's a bunch of research out there looking at different dietary patterns and type two diabetes, and and lots of folks are sort of working or looking more through that low carb kind of lens. How do you sort of reconcile all of that, or or think about this idea of managing risk versus treating the condition once someone has it? Yeah, so I would say in general, a lot of the recommendations are similar. And a lot of those dietary patterns that I talked about, like Mediterranean, DASH, Nordic portfolio, they um, can be good for preventing and managing diabetes. Um, and you'll see in a lot of clinical practice guidelines that, that you'll see similarities for prevention and treatment. 
I think when you get to actual type 2 diabetes, that's when more individualized care and blood sugar management is going to become more important. And in those scenarios, you will see that perhaps having less carbs or choosing different types of carbs like low glycemic index can become particularly important. Right. And then if we consider, I guess, the importance of weight loss in in trying to help get someone into remission, I always go back to the the kind of the weight loss trials and low carb versus high carb. And there doesn't really seem to be a clear winner, which then doubles back to the point you made earlier, which is going to be the the sort of dietary pattern that you can follow, you can adhere to. And in this instance, if weight loss is a goal, which is going to be the one that feels the easiest, I guess, for you to do. Mm -hmm, Certainly. Adherence is definitely probably the biggest predictor of success in most of these diet trials, particularly the weight loss trials. Um, So I think think that's really, really important. And maybe a low-carb diet could be good for someone, but maybe for another person, it's just not going to fit with their lifestyle. The one thing I do think about often with the low-carb diet, and I understand why some people choose it because for, for them it does help with, with weight loss. And I had Christopher Gardner on talking about diet fits and, and in that study, you know, some people did do well on low carb and some did well on high carb. It's very possible to have someone who does lose weight on a low carb diet for sure. Um, but I always kind of come back to the construction of that low carb diet. So with all of the research that you're doing and you're, and I know we, we sort of start, jumped into this off carbohydrates. So I haven't lost the train of thought. We're going to keep going on fats and protein, but this sort of fits here because we're talking about low carb diets with your research and understanding of particular nutrients and cardiometabolic health. If someone's choosing a low carbohydrate diet, is there a way that you would construct it such that it would also be reducing their risk of some of these cardiometabolic sort of conditions in the long term? Yeah, certainly. I think some concerns that can come up with low carbohydrate diets is if you are basing the diet on um, like higher saturated fat foods, so quite heavy and maybe red meat and butter and some other other animal products. And uh, we do know that Diets that are high in saturated fat can increase LDL cholesterol. So I think that's something we need to be mindful of, especially if we're talking about diabetes, they are at an increased risk of heart disease. So we definitely want to keep um, those cholesterol levels low as well. So I think it's important that you kind of limit saturated fat in, in your low carb diets and you can focus more on some plant sources of um of um, fats particularly, and then making sure you get enough vegetables as well and um, some plant protein sources. And I think um, Dr. Jenkins has done some interesting studies looking at low carb vegan diets specifically. So you might be familiar with his Eco Atkins study that was was quite a while ago now, I think it was in 2009, Um, but he um, compared a low carb vegan diet to a higher carb vegetarian diet and saw um, reductions in LDL cholesterol and, and ApoB. Um, so I think if we base those dietary patterns that are lower in carbohydrate on more plant sources, we can control all of your risk factors that are that are important for cardiometabolic health. I guess for someone who maybe is going through this to consider is that 
you can shift a lot of these these biomarkers in a favorable direction if you're losing weight but the the research at least that we have today suggests that you're not going to keep losing weight you're going to get to weight maintenance and many people end up actually regaining weight so um at some point in time the the kind of nutrient makeup of the diet does matter a lot exactly um as you mentioned so with weight loss of course you will see some beneficial effects to weight loss but as we mentioned it does plateau and you can um have uh, increased risk factors like ldl cholesterol even when you're losing weight as well so it's it's really important that we we fine fine tune some of these dietary patterns you mentioned saturated fat so let's let's segue into the controversial topic that is fat yes <laughs> how important is the type of fat we eat to to our metabolic health i would say pretty important um i can I guess kind of go through from from worst to best, perhaps. Um, so I think with worst, I think most people would agree it would be uh, trans fat. So trans fat um, that you can find in a lot of like baked goods and like hard margarines. Um, it's been shown to increase LDL cholesterol, lower HDL cholesterol, as well as um, um, linked to increased rates of heart disease. Um, the good news about trans fat is that it is. Um, being eliminated from the global food supply. So I think that is less of a concern now and moving forward, but it definitely is um, a um, type of fat we don't want in our diets. Next, I would look at saturated fat. So um, saturated fat is interesting because there's a lot of potential nuances in the, in the data for saturated fat, particularly depending on source of um, saturated fat. So the research around like red and processed meat and butter looks uh, not quite as good as say something like dairy, which may be more neutral or even protective in some cases. Um, but given, given that, the recommendations generally for saturated fat from various organizations is to keep it below 10% of total energy. Mm-hmm. And if you have, um, say, uh, dyslipidemia, for example, you might want it even lower than that. So like 7% or lower. With the dietary patterns that you, you've mentioned, where, where does saturated fat? I mean, one of the great things with focusing on dietary pattern is that it can get quite complex and technical if you're going to go away and count your mm-hmm. energy from saturated yeah. fat, right? If we were to, to, if you would ask someone tomorrow, how, what percentage of your calories are coming from saturated fat or ask yourself right now, I think very few people would, would have a, a sort of good idea of that. But one of the benefits of, of focusing on a dietary pattern, thinking about food groups is that um, naturally that will shift your saturated fat intake to a level that's below or at the recommend recommendations to lower your risk of of heart disease. So across those different dietary patterns, the DASH, the Nordic, the Mediterranean, what else did, did you mention before? Portfolio, where does the sort of saturated fat intake just tend to naturally land? Yeah, so I definitely agree with you that it's uh, important that we don't have to sit down and, and look at our diet to figure out how much saturated fat we're having. Um, but Generally, across these dietary patterns, most of them are 10% or less, particularly the Nordic diet, the portfolio diet, and the DASH diet. And specifically in the portfolio diet, it's actually um, more around 6% in a lot of the studies. So it, it's quite low in saturated fat, but that was 
that was the goal because of um, we wanted the cholesterol lowering reductions. The Mediterranean diet, um, maybe a little bit higher, but in general, I would say all of these dietary patterns are going to get you to 10% or less. Yeah, I have a podcast coming out that will be out before this one with Dr. Gil Carvalho, and he goes through why there is a little bit of confusion around saturated fats and, and talks about source, which you just mentioned, and also talks about the importance of replacement. <laughs> so if you're taking a food out uh, a food out of the diet because it's rich in saturated fat, what are you replacing it with? That's going to be really important. And dose, so people can kind of refer to that if they, if they want a bit more information. I sent you a few links to a new trend that I've seen, which seems to fly in the face of your research and others. And this is a, a diet that goes by the name of the pro-metabolic diet. And I'm having difficulty reconciling this because it's being promoted as a diet that is amazing for your metabolic health. Um, but at the same time, one of the, the central tenets, and I think I'm representing it pretty clearly, I've, I've looked at a number of the kind of main proponents for this dietary pattern. One of the main tenets is suggesting that people eat more saturated fat and that saturated fat is actually really important for metabolic health, um, recommending people eat more butter, more red meat, more tropical oils, coconut um, specifically, which seems to be the opposite of, of kind of what you're recommending and certainly what I recommend. But um, and I appreciate I only sent you this information a few days ago. I'm wondering, you know, what what your take is on on the sort of pro metabolic diet and what you would like someone to know if perhaps they've come across that and are now questioning, well, hang on, I'm eating this plant predominant diet that's low in saturated fat and now all of a sudden I'm coming across someone online that's telling me the very opposite. Yeah, thank you for sending that to me as well because I wasn't I wasn't aware of this diet, um, and I think I told you some frustrations around them not including references to some of these claims in their in their in their um, posts. But um, I'm not quite sure where um, that uh, re those recommendations are coming from and uh, where they're getting their information um, because based on what we know and kind of going back to um, the replacement of uh, saturated fat, we do see that if you replace saturated fat with particularly polyunsaturated fat sources, um, so your, your PUFAs can be your omega-6 and omega-3s, and replacing it with monounsaturated fats does um, lower your risk of um, cardiovascular disease and can improve a number of cardiometabolic risk factors. The literature also looking at things like fatty liver and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the same again. Mm -hmm. You see the same thing. Saturated fats seem to be more deleterious for liver fat, whereas the unsaturated fats seem to be more beneficial. It's hard to reconcile. One other thing that I see within, within that group, some of the claims is that certain individuals saying that they made some of these shifts and they're eating a lot of saturated fats. And, and again, this is sort of anecdotal, but I'm, I'm just wanting to throw it out there and, and workshop it. It's not validated. So it's very hard for us to understand how typical is this? Were there people that had negative effects? What was happening to their blood pressure, lipids, all that sort of stuff. But there is people saying my hormones improved mm -hmm. um, or my skin and hair improved. And 
I'm, I'm wondering a couple things here. Do you think it's possible that, that a high saturated fat diet could be beneficial in any way in terms of, say, someone's immediate health or their skin, hair, and nails, but deleterious long-term? Are we talking about two different things here? I would say definitely. I think if someone is consuming a diet that is super high in refined grains and lots of sugars, and then they cut those things out and they're consuming like higher fat, saturated fat uh, foods, you might see some improvements in some of these things that we talked about, particularly uh, skin. There is some research showing that high refined carbohydrates and high glycemic index foods can um, negatively impact your skin and increase acne. So I think that definitely could be at play for a lot of these anecdotes. Um, but as you said, like long-term health, um, I think we do have good evidence that a high saturated fat diet long-term is not, is not the best diet for cardiometabolic health. Well, that's been debunked <laughs> by a researcher um, and, a, and a registered dietitian. So you tick both those boxes there. Um, very grateful to have you here. What about the idea of, or the scenario where someone wasn't eating a highly refined diet but saw improvements. So another scenario that I see come up, and I'd be this opens a, a, a little bit of a Pandora's box, but we'll see where we go, is someone who was adopting a very restrictive, low-fat vegan diet mm -hmm. and then made those changes. Is that another scenario where someone could experience improvements in their health? It's a good question. Um I know the some of the low fat vegan diets they can be quite low in fat like even like 20 10% you see in some of those studies and people do see see benefits I'm I'm not familiar with any um like anecdotes or even studies that have have specifically looked at this there could be scenarios that maybe people might might feel better um but again I would probably be worried about um some of their LDL cholesterol that they're focusing on on right. saturated fat, but if they're adding rufas and pufas to the low-fat diet, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so concerned. Yeah, I guess what one of my kind of hypotheses was that if you were adopting a diet at, to begin with for a, for a long period, you were doing a sort of very low-fat vegan diet that was low in just total fat, and you you weren't including pufas and and monounsaturated fats. Um, that perhaps just through increasing your fat intake, you might experience some some sort of more immediate benefits to your health. It was a hypothesis okay. that I had, but that that I guess the heart of that question is there is obviously some rhetoric out there that a low fat vegan diet is best for cardiovascular health in particular. Um, and that message usually comes with a message to restrict or exclude oils like olive and canola, which you've, you've mentioned before, are part of these dietary um, patterns that are associated with good cardiometabolic health, and also to even re reduce or limit exposure or consumption of nuts, seeds, avocado. What do you think about that message? Is that a message that is well-supported? by the research that you've done or, or that you've read? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good question. And I think um, particularly for, <clears throat> for adding fat, fat to the diet, um, we can definitely see some benefits. Um, and I think 
an important point is along with a lot of those oils that like we don't have to have them in the diet in order to see benefits. But in those um, dietary patterns, I mentioned Mediterranean, Portfolio and Nordic, they do include a lot of those oils, particularly olive oil or canola oil um, and, and avocado as well. And we did give some of that in, in the portfolio diet trials. So I think you don't have to exclude um, oils and foods high in fat like nuts as well to see cardiometabolic benefits. Um, and there may even be some benefits, particularly including whole sources like nuts and avocado as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the low fat vegan diet, again, I would probably come back to to ad- adherence again as well because they can be quite quite challenging to follow potentially. Yeah, I think there's this sort of general idea when you think about, say, plaque buildup in an artery. I think people associate that with it's like a fatty plaque, <laughs> fatty buildup, and then assume that fat in the diet causes that overlooking or just not being made aware of the fact that different fats affect that pathological process in a different way. And as you say, some of these unsaturated fats, particularly in whole foods, may be inherently beneficial for reducing the risk of of that process. Definitely. And I think we do have some evidence from that. If I go back to the, the PREDIMED trial where they were giving extra virgin olive oil and nuts, and it was fairly high fat diet. It wasn't totally plant-based, but plant predominant, and they saw reductions um, in stroke. So I think the, the fat theory is, is not totally uh, uh, legit there in terms of that it has to be a low fat diet. Okay. So we don't need to put a line through fat. Um, we don't need to eat low fat. We, we just need to eat better mm-hmm. fat. That seems to be the, the kind of take home message here. Yep. And oil doesn't have to be part of the dietary pattern, but equally it could be. And you've mentioned canola and olive oil. I think that by and large, outside of that sort of very low-fat vegan um, part of the community, I think by and large, most people accept that olive oil um, can be part of a a sort of health-promoting dietary pattern. Canola oil raises a few eyebrows. (laughs) I think people see it as a very intensively ultra-processed manufactured food, there's chemicals involved and and so I think there are skeptics. So if someone is skeptical, um, how would you try and um, alleviate some concern um, through either your research or speaking to the, the kind of data that you've come across with with regards to canola oil and health outcomes or changes in biomarkers? Yeah, it seems to get a bad rap. The, the canola oil, um, which is which is interesting. And I think, as you mentioned, a lot of it, yeah, stems from processing or like GMOs, things like that come up a lot. Um, but we use canola oil in, in our portfolio diet studies and it's used in the Nordic diet trials as well. And there's also been some specific just canola oil studies and there doesn't seem to be any harm in particular, there's likely benefits related to uh, blood lipids as well as cardiovascular disease risk reduction. So I think some of these uh, worries about canola oil are unsubstantiated. Okay. And how would you compare it to olive oil? If someone was thinking, okay, next time I go down to the grocery store, mm-hmm. 
Am I choosing regular olive oil? Am I choosing extra virgin olive oil? Am I choosing canola? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think with olive oil, I think most of the, or most of the best evidence does come from extra virgin olive oil. So this type of oil has more polyphenols than just your regular olive oil. And that is typically what they use in the Mediterranean region. And it's what they use in the PREDIMED study. So I think if you can, extra virgin olive oil would be probably the best option that uh, that we would have. Um, but it is expensive. So I am always a little bit weary of making a blanket statement about using just extra virgin olive oil. Um, so there, all, there also has been benefits looking at regular olive oil as well um, for cardiometabolic health. So it's, it's a bit uh, cheaper. And same with canola oil. Um, and you can also get cold pressed canola oil as well, if you are concerned mm. about some of the processing, although again, it, it's a bit more expensive. So I think, you know, mm. any of those that, that you can afford to have in your diet would be the best mm. option. And I guess depending on the recipe or what you're cooking with or your taste buds, canola might be slightly more neutral. Yeah, exactly. Olive oil, especially some of the extra virgins have a stronger taste, so it may not work so well in in, in certain recipes, um, particularly say for making, I don't know, like a baked good or something. <laughs> okay, let's talk about protein. I've had a number of, of researchers on the show recently from different backgrounds, but but all sort of talking about protein. I've had Christopher Gardner, Volta Longo, um, Don Lehman, um, who I think a few people probably were surprised to see on my show, um, Stuart Phillips, and we've talked about the protein source as it relates to things like muscle protein synthesis and sarcopenia um, and sort of um, staying independent as we age, healthy aging. Um, and when I sort of sit back and, and reconcile all of that information, I certainly see the importance of staying strong and, and having a good amount of muscle we don't need to be bodybuilders but but having good sort of functional capacity as we age is important and having strong bones but i i can't help but notice the sort of what seems to be overwhelming evidence with regards to cardiometabolic benefits that are up for grabs when you swap calories from animal protein for plant protein and um in speaking with uh, these, these different guys. I think some are on board that message. Others like Don Lehman, whose work I value tremendously, just don't seem to really be uh, appreciating that or, or perhaps are not persuaded by that data that exists. So I'm interested to hear from you here. If we're thinking about cardiometabolic health, coming back to the start of this conversation, we're thinking about how do we reduce our chances of having a heart attack or a stroke or developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease how important is the source the foods that we're getting our our protein from for cardiometabolic health i would say it's pretty important and i think there's been a lot of really good research in this area that that has shown that both from cohort studies as well as from trials um, so i can talk just a little bit about um, some of that research so i'll first start with cohorts and this is a specific study that I was involved with um, that was published in Diabetes Care, I think earlier in June, maybe. Um, so this was looking at different protein sources in um, 
in two cohorts and at their risk of um, developing type 2 diabetes. So the cohorts were the Women's Health Initiative, um, again, and then the UK Biobank. Um, so that's a cohort in the UK of, of just a general healthy adults. And what we uh, found is overall that animal protein from all sources is uh, associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, whereas plant protein from all sources was associated with a lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And when we looked at the different sources, we saw some, some interesting associations with, with diabetes and specifically with um, animal protein, red and processed meat, um, low omega-3 seafood, poultry, and eggs were associated with increased risk. Um, whole grains and nuts were associated with decreased risk. And then our high omega-3 seafood dairy and legumes were neutral. And then we also did some substitution analyses to look at if you substitute animal plant protein. And it looked quite similar where there was um, benefits with, with plant protein sources. And in particular, when you replaced um, bread and processed meat, poultry, eggs, and those low omega-3 seafood. And when you say benefits, what, what benefits are you referring to there? Uh, lower risk of diabetes. Sorry. When you... Um, present this type of research so this is looking at in this case women's health initiative and uk biobank mm -hmm. so two different um populations i'm sure that you've been met with the question or the comment that well hang on people who are eating more red meat are just representative of people that are less healthy overall so um they're probably if they're eating more red meat that means that they're less health conscious you know the their public health messaging has been to reduce red meat so if someone's eating a lot of it they're someone that's not taking notice so much of public health messaging therefore they're probably more likely to smoke they're probably more likely to exercise less less often live a sedentary lifestyle probably more likely to drink alcohol etc and so someone might take the view, well, is higher animal protein really associated with type 2 diabetes or is that just a proxy here for someone living an unhealthy lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And I know that as a researcher doing this research in your position, I'm telling you something that you're well aware of and probably think about all the time. Um, and I think many people think that that researchers in your position are not aware of that sort of limitation. <laughs> um, but Tell me how you think about that and then what you do with your data to try and make sure what we're seeing is a true effect of the particular food, in this case, animal protein versus plant protein. Yeah, that's definitely something that comes up all the time. And it's, it is something that is inherent of, of uh, observational research. Um, but an important thing that we do with our analyses is that we adjust for many of these factors. So going back to what I said with body weight earlier, we measure all of these um, factors that may also be related to diabetes. So other dietary factors, smoking, body mass index, things like education, income, all of those things are measured. So we include those in our um, analyses to help account for some of those factors. So if someone is, say, um, they eat a lot of red meat and they, they drink more and they smoke more, we should be controlling for this. Of course, it's not 
perfect. So there could be some um, residual confounding there. So that's why I think it's really important that we look at consistencies across other cohorts and, and then also look at consistencies with trials. And specifically with cohorts, we do see this repeated in other, in other cohorts. So um, in the EPIC cohort, they saw uh, similar associations. And then with the Harvard cohorts here, they've also seen um, benefits of replacing animal protein with plant protein. And what about trials? What evidence would you kind of point to um, that from a trial point of view that's that's tried to look at the difference between animal and plant mm -hmm. protein with regards to cardiometabolic health? Mm -hmm. So our group in Toronto has done a number of systematic reviews and meta-analyses on this topic. So that's pooling all of the trials that we have available looking at this. And they've done a they've done a series, so I guess I can I can talk about the three different ones. So the first one was looking at blood lipids, particularly LDL, uh, non HDL, and ApoB. Um, so they were looking at the you know the targets that we that we really care about, and they found that swapping animal protein for plant protein did lower all three of those blood lipids. Um, and and a really interesting analysis within that is that most of these trials are swapping dairy for soy. Um, so it's a uh, it's looking at uh, different types of what you might might imagine, but they also did subgroup analyses looking at um, swapping with um, meat or um, eggs, for example, and they still saw the associations of um, or sorry the effects of lower lipids with with uh, plant protein. Mm -hmm. Just to double click on that a little bit, is that something that you feel is driven by differences in protein per se, or is it? the kind of protein package when you're eating more animal protein you're kind of you're getting usually more saturated mm -hmm. fat and then when you're eating more plant protein on the flip side you get less saturated fat and more fiber which you've already explained affects cholesterol how do you kind of think about that yeah it thinks it's it's probably a bit of both we have like the displacement effect so when you're um you're removing some of that saturated fat in the diet, you're likely going to see some reductions in, in those lipids, but there are inherent properties to um, some of these um, plant protein sources, particularly legumes. So there's some amino acids that they contain that have been shown to, to lower um, cholesterol as well. And I think uh, Dr. Jenkins had a nice paper looking at that with soy protein, looking at the intrinsic versus extrinsic effects of soy protein. And they saw that there is a displacement, but there is still some effects related just to the plant protein itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very interesting. <laughs> is that all we need to cover on, on the protein side of things? Or is there anything you wanted to add there before we move on? I would probably just mention another um, systematic review and meta-analysis did because that was just blood lipids. So we've also looked at blood pressure. And um, also saw that swapping plant protein for animal protein um, can reduce blood pressure. So that was another meta-analysis done by the Toronto group. And then they also did another one looking at markers of glycemic control in um, patients with diabetes. And they did see modest improvements in A1C in that meta-analysis as well with those uh, swaps. So I think plant protein definitely can be beneficial for, for cardiometabolic health when replacing animal protein of various sources. Okay, so where we get our protein from matters. Let's, let's dive slightly deeper into the portfolio diet. One of the components within that um, dietary portfolio 
is plant sterols. And I wanted to get you to to kind of help us better understand what these are. I know that Dr. Jenkins spoke about, if I recall correctly, um, taking sort of two grams a day for someone that was wanting to, to lower their, their cholesterol. Um, what are plant sterols and how are they influencing cholesterol levels in the body? So plant sterols are they're naturally found in all plant foods. They're actually found in the, the cell walls of plants and they're a natural part of, of um, all plant foods. And when we eat them in the diet, um, they can inhibit the absorption of cholesterol because the chemical structure is very, very similar to cholesterol. So it kind of blocks absorption. But when we consume them in our natural diet, we're probably getting maybe 200, 400 milligrams. Maybe if you're vegan or vegetarian, you might get up to 600. So that might have some important um, effects on, on cholesterol absorption, but um, it's really not um, going to be enough to get those clinically meaningful reductions. So that's where, well, where Dr. Jenkins mentioned two grams. There's been a number of studies looking at plant sterile supplements and LDL cholesterol, where if you give uh, two grams per day or 1.5 to three, it depends, but two grams um, probably is reasonable. We can see reductions of um, up to 10% in LDL cholesterol. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's no, no small reduction. So um, is, is this something that is effective for everyone? I've heard that there are a small percentage of people who perhaps um, plant sterols are contraindicated for and, and may actually have a deleterious effect? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And there is a genetic disorder where individuals um, retain some of those sterols in their, their arteries and they can develop cardiovascular disease. But this is extremely rare and it's also going to happen when they consume plant foods. So like nuts and, and oils as well. And um, I don't know the actual um, how many people have it, but I know that it's quite rare. It's called uh, cytosterolemia. So those individuals obviously wouldn't want to take plant sterols. But from my understanding is that that's usually diagnosed pretty early in life because uh, it's quite obvious when people have that. Mm -hmm. And I know um, there has been some interest in some of the other genetic um, or people who have genetics that might make um, them have an increased risk of coronary artery disease specifically. Um, but um, from what I know in my chats with Dr. Jenkins, it's not something that we're super concerned about right now. And there's no guideline saying that these specific people shouldn't take plant sterols. But I think it's definitely an area that uh, needs more research. Is there any trials that you're aware of that have looked at plant sterols over a longer period where they're able to assess hard sort of health outcomes? The, the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke, or at this stage are all of the studies looking at the sort of effect on LDL cholesterol as a risk factor for those events? So right now, there are no studies that are looking at plant sterols and, and lower cardiovascular disease risk. It's mainly just looking at, at blood lipids. Um, but our our group in Toronto is, is hoping um, that one day we'll be able to do this. So my uh, PhD supervisor, Dr. John Stephen Piper, he recently received a grant to um, conduct a study. So this, it's a portfolio diet study. So plant sterols are not the only component, but they are one of the components. Um, and it's going to be in a thousand high risk uh, patients. It's going to be for a year. 
And um, we're looking at the primary outcomes are reductions in LDL and non-HDL cholesterol. And the plan is if we see, if we get those reductions over the years, that we would extend this trial for five more years. So possibly we might um, be able to look at some harder outcomes of the portfolio diet that includes plant sterols. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's very exciting. Mm -hmm. I look forward to to seeing the results of, of that. A question that I've had from a number of people since that episode with David was, is the portfolio diet going to be effective for someone who has genetically elevated cholesterol? Yeah, it's a, a good question. And I would say, yes, uh, definitely can help. If people have genetically elevated cholesterol, they are going to need to take medications as well. But if you combine the two, you can get um, additional benefits. And I think importantly that sometimes people just think the portfolio diet's only for LDL cholesterol, but we do see reductions in, in, we saw reductions in triglycerides, we saw reductions in inflammation, we saw small reductions in blood pressure. So I think it's still an important dietary pattern where you can get um, additional benefits on cardiometabolic health just beyond those cholesterol-lowering properties. You mentioned a few times um, food groups like dairy or seafood that can feature within a healthy sort of plant-predominant diet, and it gets me wondering about this concept of sort of plant-predominant versus plant-exclusive. And do you think a can a plant-exclusive diet be just as good for cardiometabolic health as some of these dietary patterns that you've mentioned where there's quite a bit of evidence? Can it be better? Can it be on par? Are there things for people that are adopting a plant-exclusive diet to consider? Definitely. So plant-exclusive, so if we think, I guess, vegan and um, vegetarian would include some dairy and eggs, so I guess it's not plant-exclusive. We do have evidence showing that plant-exclusive and vegan diets can be helpful for cardiometabolic disease risk reduction. The metabolically controlled portfolio diets were also vegan. So um, even though in the dietary advice, people did end up eating some animal products just because of adherence, they were true uh, plant-exclusive diets. Um, then we did see those large reductions in, in LDL cholesterol. I think in terms of um, what you asked what they need to look out for in some of the plant exclusive was that the question i guess i'm 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 thinking uh, this question comes from a couple of angles one is from your research and just how you think about this this topic and you've mentioned all these different dietary patterns and you spoke earlier about the positive uh, of this being people have choice so um is there is there a difference in terms of the cardiometabolic kind of risk profile for a plant predominant versus a plant exclusive diet that people should be aware of? Or do you feel that when all of these dietary patterns are kind of appropriately planned, that they're all so health promoting that we don't see any sort of significant differences between them? I'm kind of just interested in, in hearing your opinion on that. Yeah. So I think with plant exclusive, we will sometimes see larger reductions in things like LDL cholesterol. I think um, we can say that, although I think we probably need a head-to-head -head trial to, to confirm that with some of the other ones. I think in some of the um, exclusively plant-based diets as well, they did um, sometimes have 
either lower HDL or sometimes higher triglycerides that can that can pop up sometimes. So I think when we have that happening, diet quality is going to be more important. So maybe you need to take out some of those grains and and use some more healthy fats. I guess go kind of going back to our low fat vegan diet, you might want to add some oils or or nuts or avocado to that so that you're not impacting negatively impacting other cardiometabolic uh, risk factors. Okay. Talk to me more about diet quality there. Something else that kind of comes to mind here is the the new plant-based vegan style products that are on shelf. I'm guessing that these are not really foods that are part of the dietary patterns you've been researching. And I'm curious to what you think um, the outlook is uh, for, for cardiometabolic health in the future, say 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, if there are a lot of people sort of moving to a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet, but that diet makeup is different to the diet patterns in your studies and and is more uh inclusive of calories from foods that are potentially you know stripped of fiber and contain you know additives and and whatnot do you do you foresee any differences in terms of cardiometabolic health if someone's diet is made up of a lot of those foods yeah there's definitely been uh a major shift in a lot of the food that is available for um, vegans these days. And um, not all of these foods are created equal. And I think a lot of them can be, as you mentioned, high in refined grains. They don't have a lot of fiber and they can be higher in salt and sugar and um, as well. And I think it's, it's possible that if people are consuming those types of diets, that um, it will negatively impact um, their cardiometabolic risk. I think there was some good analyses done by my uh, supervisor, Frank, who looking at unhealthy versus unhealthy plant-based or unhealthy versus healthy plant-based diets, showing that if you have a plant-based diet that's higher in refined carbohydrates and, and um, high sugary foods, that um, it was associated with increased coronary heart disease and type 2 diabetes risk. So I do think uh, we do need to be mindful of some of these products. Um, I would say that not... All of them are bad, and I would say that we actually do include them in our portfolio diet trials. At least, at least sometimes we do include a lot of plant milks, particularly soy milk, and then we also include some plant-based meat alternatives in um, in the diet as well. And um, those products, as well, I think there's a lot of different uh, options that you can choose from, and some are going to be better better than others. Um, but in our portfolio trials, um, we do include them, and Dr. Jenkins has used them in studies. And um, so far, it looks like there's a, a no harmful risk anyway, and maybe even some benefit. Okay. So with your registered dietitian hat on, if someone's in front of the plant-based alternative meat shelf at the grocery store, and they're flipping around, or flipping their the various products around and looking at the nutritional information in 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 sort of a, a very quick way how can the average person decipher between a product that might be better than another one i think there are a number of things you can look at so a few things i would look at saturated fat content um so that um, if it's higher in saturated fat um, you definitely want to um, maybe pick another one if you can find one that's lower 
Sodium could also be an issue as well. So if you can find one lower in sodium. And then I would also look at protein. So some of them are actually not really that high in protein. And if you're going to be, you know, swapping um, an animal protein for a plant protein, you probably want to try and, and match it as much as you can. Um, and specifically for cardiometabolic health, ones that are made from soy and pea are probably going to be better than some of the other um, uh, plant-based proteins they could be made of. Okay, cool. Some great mm-hmm. tips there. When we zoom out and and think about plant predominant or exclusive dietary patterns and overall mortality, so um, how long someone is likely to live or their risk of premature death, does eating a, a diet like we've spoken about that promotes good cardiometabolic health, does that mean greater chance of living a longer life or will these people just develop some other disease? Yeah, so I think um, we would have to go to cohorts for this because we don't have uh, trials looking specifically at uh, death with these the dietary patterns. But in general, we do see the same associations with um, lower mortality risk with these um, specific dietary patterns. I know I remember there was a study done in the Harvard cohorts here. I think it was published a few years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at diet quality over uh, many years and maintaining diet quality specifically. Um, And they looked at the Mediterranean and DASH diet, and they saw that there was reductions in total mortality and um, a lot of the cause-specific mortality um, diseases as well. So I think think in, in general, we see a lot of consistencies there. How do we make it easier for people to do this? So you mentioned before the Health Canada guidelines. And look, I think they're great. I think they're consistent with the evidence. You mentioned that they're one of, if not the only dietary guidelines that the committee sort of came out and said, we're not going to be influenced by industry in the formulation of these. I think that's a great step forward. But then I'm also aware that you know, I think it's 6.1% of Australians, I looked at this yesterday, according to last year's data, actually meet the recommendations in the dietary guidelines. So I kind of have this cynical view that, well, Australia's dietary guidelines, look, they could be a little bit better for sure. Um, if everyone adhered to them today, our health across the country would be way better, but we can make the guidelines as, as good as we want. But it does little if, if people can't adhere to it in a, in a kind of food environment that makes it very difficult. So as a, a researcher who's so in touch with the data and, of course, you want to see public health improve, what needs to happen such that we see widespread adoption of the dietary patterns that you're researching? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And there was actually... Um some work um, done after Canada's food guide came out to get some reactions from people. And a lot of people were confused about the plant protein recommendations and the dairy not being as prominent. And they didn't really know, like, what am, what am I supposed to eat? Because it's the same with uh, Canada. A lot of people aren't consuming plant protein specifically. So it's a, a maybe unfamiliar to a lot of people. And I think overall to get people to do this. So there's a number of a number of things that uh, we need to consider. I think 
cooking skills and education is going to be a huge part of this. And I particularly think this should be done in schools, like with the younger children specifically when their dietary habits are forming and so they can become familiar with a lot of these different foods that they may not have normally consumed, um, particularly things like uh, soy or lentils or peas. Um, And I also think government policies are going to be important in changing the food environment. And there's a number of different types of policies that could be um, effective here as well, even just like foods that are offered at schools or hospitals, um, some of the subsidies around these different foods. There's a lot that can be done. And I think um, a lot needs to be done in order to get people to start following the dietary guidelines. Okay, very good. And for the people that are listening now, who um, I'm going to assume that if they've had the the last two hours to listen to this, they're, they're probably in a position to to also make a few changes to their own diet. And I'm sure now they'll be inspired to do so. I think you've created a really strong case for the adoption of these plant predominant or exclusive dietary patterns. Um, they, they're helping shift risk factors for cardiometabolic conditions like blood pressure and blood glucose and cholesterol and inflammation in, in the right direction. So let's say people are sold on all of that and maybe they've tried to do this before and it just hasn't stuck and they're going going to finish this podcast and go away and think a little bit more about it what are the 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 one two or three things that you really want to land and do you have any kind of words of advice that might help them make changes that are sustainable yeah, all very, all very important. And I think in terms of adopting more of a plant-based diet, my first tip would be to just look at what you eat now and your favorite foods and your favorite recipes and see how you can make those more plant-based. Um, I think that's really important because if you want to adhere to a diet long-term, it needs to be something you like. So um, if you have a um, specific favorite recipe, it could be anything, but say it's quite meat-centric, you could... Um, do some swaps there with some plant protein, could be soy, beans, peas, lentils, whatever, whatever you feel like trying. I think you should be open-minded and and, uh, just go out there and and, uh, start experimenting with some different foods and figuring out uh, what you would like. I think another important point is that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, So you don't have to be 100% plant exclusive and just give up everything right away, especially, if we want to see um, cardiometabolic benefits, even just making some small changes, you can see some um, important uh, risk reductions. And we saw we saw this in our portfolio diet trials. Um, even small changes can you can get um, significant reductions in um, your cholesterol, for example. So I think that would be um, my main points related to plant based diets for sure. Are there any particular foods or food groups or simple swaps that you think are kind of represent the biggest bang for their buck? It's a, another good question. I think um, kind of going back to what we said, swapping some of that animal protein for plant protein, particularly if you are someone that consumes a lot of red and processed meat, I think that would be um, a really, a really good um, place to start. You'll get to um, definitely likely see some reductions in uh, in blood lipids with that because it'll be less saturated fat. 
And then I think some other swaps that could be important could be related to um, like fat sources. So again, if you're, if you're consuming butter, maybe you could get some olive oil instead um, and start using that. And then looking at your, your carbohydrate sources as well. So if you're consuming like higher refined grains, you can swap that for uh, maybe some whole grains like steel cut oats. So if you're someone who has, you have quick oats at breakfast, even swapping to steel cut oats, I think could be a good, something good for cardiometabolic health. If someone's not sure if they're consuming sort of highly refined grains, what are the, what are the typical pantry products? If they open their pantry, what, what do those foods look like? The refined grains you mean? So they could be a lot of packaged foods um, specifically. Um, so a lot of um, maybe some breads and not all breads are created equal, but some breads can be quite refined. If you're looking at things like rice, typically like white rice, um, you could swap that for a brown rice. Um, I think with some maybe a white pasta, you could swap that with a, with a whole grain pasta. I think those are probably um, some of the, the easier switches that you could do in, in your diet to get more fiber and, and uh, lower glycemic index. Beautiful. Thank you so much andrea for joining us uh today this has been incredibly valuable i think it's a uh, a beautiful blend of science and then also the practical information that you offer which of course is uh, reflective of of your uh, dietetics um qualifications and then also your um, time spent in academia so i'm very grateful for you being here today i know that our community will be very grateful um and and hopefully we can connect again in the future if there's someone listening that would like to connect with you on the socials i know that you're on twitter perhaps they want to keep up to date with the the new studies that you bring out where's the best place for people to find you well thank you so much for having me and twitter is probably the best place to find me so my twitter handle is andrea glenn rd uh, so you can find me there um, i don't have instagram so maybe that's something i should consider in the future but uh right now that's probably the best place you can find me yeah well i think if you've managed to keep your mental health in good order on twitter you'll be okay on instagram yes. it's a it's a kinder place i find anyway but um i'll put the the link to your twit your twitter uh, profile and the various studies that you've um, spoken about today into the show notes for everyone to uh, have a look at if they wish cool i think we did it thank you so much for being here today i really enjoyed it great thanks so much simon thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation i hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive if you did and you'd like to show your support for the show please subscribe to our youtube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format please also consider subscribing to the show on the spotify and or apple podcast app wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts you can also leave a comment on the youtube videos or a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take notes of these comments when planning for future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.